Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode six of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. I'm David Weston and with me once again are Jan Rosenau of the Regulatory Assistance Project and Michaela Hole from Agora Energy Vendor. Hi team, how are you today? Morning. Um, well, exhausted really after the last week where you know, we've just been swamped with you know, breaking news daily or hourly from the energy sector you know, with uh, gas prices, oil prices and electricity prices um, at an all time high again. Uh, and of course, the huge question that everybody's asking, what can we do to move away from expensive imports uh, from Russia? So it's been an exhausting week um, and I look forward to the conversation. Yeah, um, same here. It's hard to keep track and keep focus also, no, and have it structured in your head with all the info flowing. If it's any indicator that things have gotten frantic, it's that I meet Jan more often outside the podcast. Like yesterday, we saw each other in three meetings, like, ah, oh, it's you again. <laughs> so <laughs> you see, it gets more dynamic every day. Lots of work going on. And Michaela, you're kind of our, our resident uh, European Commission expert, have you got a sense of what the feeling is from inside the Commission? Well, in terms of workload, you mean? <laughs> yeah, well, workload, sort of mood. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty madness. I would say they no, they will come out with the strategy today in Strasbourg, which was postponed by a week, and that only came on top. And I know how things had been already. You know. Um, when it already was accelerating, which was with the recovery plan. And now, this, you know, it's just things come on top and on top and on top. It's, uh, I think it's quite demanding <laughs> in terms of what yeah, Of course. Absolutely, yeah. The, so the fallout of the unprovoked and unjustified invasion of Ukraine by Russia will be felt for many years across all areas of society. It has also put... Uh, the debate over Europe's energy security and transition front and centre. While the questions over Europe's dependency on Russian oil and gas and whether it has been a millstone around the neck of the energy transition has been around for many years, there is now a new political momentum to shut off the supply. Can Europe go alone? And what does it mean for the shift to a decarbonised economy and the economy in general? Our guest this week is Christian Ruby, Secretary General of Euroelectric, the sector association of Europe's electricity industry. We're going, we will discuss the role of the energy market can play in shutting off Russian influence and what it means for the energy consumers across Europe. Christian, thanks for joining us today. The current crisis in the Ukraine has placed Europe's security at the heart of the debate in the, in the energy sector. Uh, why is that? And can you explain uh, the synchronization of the Ukraine grid and what it means technically and politically for the rest of Europe? 
yeah, if we start with with why energy security is becoming such a such a critical part of this debate. I think it's really about the fact that, of course, uh, there's there's an immediate layer which is about uh, our dependence on imports uh, of fossil fuels from Russia. It's gas uh, that we talk a lot about. It's also oil, but it is also coal, and um, and that brings me to the underlying issue here, which is that. Actually, I think part of the reason why we're seeing uh, Russia uh, become so aggressive is, of course, about geopolitics, about NATO and them feeling threatened. But it's also very much about the fact that they feel they have no place in the liberal world order that has been created in the last 10 to 20 years. They do not have a... Uh, uh, democratically legitimate uh, regime, and they do not have anything to offer for the energy transition. More and more, they see themselves marginalized and having nothing on the shelves that they can offer the world. Uh, the energy uh, products that they have will increasingly be obsolete in, in the uh, decarbonized world. And as a consequence of that, their um, heavy industry will also struggle to compete. Um, the CBAM would, for instance, have significant impacts on Russia. So I think that's why energy security is such a critical part of this debate. Coming to the issue of the synchronization, that's a bit more of a technical uh, matter. I would explain it in, in very plain terms uh, by, by um, comparing it to a band that plays together. If you play a song together in a band, you want to have the same groove. You want to swing at the same frequency. That's essentially what this uh, synchronization is about. Currently, um, Ukraine is grooving with Russia and has been for many years. What that also means is that Russia has a control to exert over the um, uh, Ukrainian electricity grid. And that's why it's so uh, geopolitically uh, charged to, to move away from that and, and groove up with Europe, if you will. Um, from a political point of view, this makes a lot of sense. What we need to make sure is that it is also technically feasible and does not mean that all of a sudden the lights go out in Europe. So um, so this is something that that we, we sort of cautiously support from, from a moral, political point of view, but we also say, let's, uh, let's dig into this and find out how this is actually going to work. So, may I? So just to understand, so this technical works are ongoing? Already, um, yeah. No? Yes, this is being looked right. into. There's just been a uh, test where uh, it was uh, synced up uh, with the European grids for I think three mm. days, and 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 following that, there's been this strong urge, of course, from the Ukrainians. We don't want to go back because uh, right now we're seeing uh, that part of the Russian strategy is actually to uh, targetedly. Uh, let's say, go for control of, of, of the key power stations in Russia with a view to exerting pressure on civil society and, and, uh, and political decision makers in uh, Ukraine by threatening to, to, to basically uh, shut off electricity. Christian, um, when I looked at the amount of gas that Europe imports from Russia over the last 10 years, you can really see that going up quite significantly year by year. How, how much of that is used in the power sector, which of course you represent, you represent the major electricity companies in Europe. How important is gas for producing power? And what alternatives do we really have 
um, to substitute the gas that we import from Russia for power production with something else? And if if so, what, what is that something else? What do you think are the key solutions really to lower the dependency on these imports? Well, if we start with the big picture, what part of uh, gas in Europe is being burned in the power sector? It's a very limited amount compared to what goes into heating and what goes into industry. Um, nevertheless, it's quite a significant part uh, because most recently, given the fact that gas is so expensive, it, it is also the price setter in the market. And that's why we have these issues where um, significantly rising gas prices are having ripple effects uh, on electricity prices. This is what's what's so challenging. If we look at what we could substitute it with, well, the obvious way, way forward is to look at the cheapest available technologies for the bulk of what we want to substitute with. That's wind and solar. But let's be clear, if we take out a a dispatchable technology uh, such as gas, we need to make sure that we have other dispatchable sources at our availability or, um, or storage technologies. Mm. And it's probably an and rather than an or. So what are those other technologies? Well, uh, we have coal, but we know that if we go coal, uh, we're going to basically uh, get the, the energy transition derailed. So we should really limit the sort of uh, bounce back to coal as much as possible in this phase. Then we have um, biomass. We also know that vastly expanding biomass has its own, uh, let's say, uh, environmental challenges. Um, and then we have uh, nuclear. And we also know the challenges around nuclear, but we have to be honest and clear and pragmatic in this situation and say, uh, we need to use the options available. We cannot be too picky here. We have an immediate massive moral and geopolitical crisis right at the front of Europe. So uh, we cannot be too Puritan. We need to look at what's actually possible and play with that. Do you think it's a case of maybe putting the energy transition on a, on a slightly back burner for the time being in, in order to cut the reliance on, on Russian, Russian imports? I think the energy transition holds a lot of the answers uh, to uh, the, the crisis that we're seeing in Russia for the moment. Um, if we want to wean ourselves off fossil fuels, uh, and let's be clear, as I said, a lot of the fossil fuels we get today come from Russia. We need a massive increase in uh, renewables and other carbon neutral technologies. So it's really about speeding those processes up. It's, it's about uh, electrifying end use sectors. It's about getting away from those imported products that put us at a dependency and, and have also put us uh, in this state of political paralysis uh, and, and, and um, made us unable to, to provide the adequate response in this I'm situation. I'm glad you said that. I think um, if anything, no, if, I think if one has learned anything from the past, it's that, you know, in the past you, you saw renewables, electrification, energy efficiency as the key solutions for climate change. But actually now, and it has been phrased most prominently by the German finance minister last week, Renewables and energy efficiency are actually also security of supply tools. I think that's what has changed in this debate and it's very important. Christian, if I may, going back to your other options, 
did I understand you correctly that basically, and I think I could go along with that, that you say whatever we have in terms of existing capacity, nuclear, biomass or coal, we should be pragmatic in the way that we use it. But I would say the story is probably different if we talk about new capacity of those technologies, right? Which would come in late or... Yeah, I think um, as as the representative of the entire European power sector, I, I might have a slightly different view than than um, than journalists or or people representing a civil society. Um, what what I look at is how do we get energy independence and how do we decarbonize as fast as possible? I totally concur with the view that 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 geopolitics and decarbonization are now two sides of the same coin and a lot of the objectives are aligned. Now, looking at the choices of individual companies and individual countries for how to decarbonize, I take the view that this needs to be cost effective and it needs uh, to also, let's say, uh, be pragmatic. And we need to have a certain, uh, let's say, level of individual choice here. We've made studies in in your electric that basically show that by 2050, uh, more than 80% of all electricity will come from renewables. Um, But that will be backed up by a a set of other technologies. Um, And I think there needs to be a certain liberty for uh, for individual companies and countries to choose their pathway. Um, some countries uh, have a lot of uh, competence uh, tied up in, in certain technologies. And basically at this point in time saying, we cannot go gas, but we can also not go nuclear uh, and biomass and hydro. That is basically an indefendable position because um, as soon as you match that up with the numbers of, of uh, with the volumes of gas you need to substitute, you basically arrive at the point that, that we have to use uh, a, a wide variety of technologies. To your point, some of this will come very late. You're absolutely right. We need to be quite clear about the fact that um, a lot of the deployment, and by the way, that it also goes for renewables, it will come too late uh, when it comes to tackling the immediate security crisis we have at hand. Here we need to look at other tactics, I would call it. But but looking at tactics, um, you need to make sure that you uh, maintain the side of the strategy. Yeah, there's an important time dimension isn't there to this. I mean, we have... A short-term response, um, you know, people asking the question, what can we do this year by next, before next winter, essentially. And then there is the more longer-term dimension, which is the next five to ten years. Um, and clearly the answers to what we can do this year, opposed to what we can do in five or ten years, will be quite different. You know, I have seen calls also for turning down thermostats, for example, in buildings, which would have a huge impact uh, directly if everybody participated. But of course, that is not changing the underlying supply structure that we have. Um, and you know those effects might not be persistent. People may, and this is what experience shows in previous energy crises, they may do this for one year, maybe a couple of years, but then many people will revert back to their previous behavior. So when you look at what the EU is going to publish today, the strategy that will come out, um, do you think that's going to contain both sort of short-term measures and more 
long-term measures? And if so, what do you expect from the strategy, um, what the Commission will announce later today? Well, um, I'm always kind of cautious to judge uh, too much uh, on leaks. Uh, but from what we've seen, I'm really not impressed, sorry to say. Um, and that has <laughs> to do with the fact that I think they overemphasize the immediate term and they tend to forget about the longer term in, in, in what we've seen so far. Um, let's be very clear, it is absolutely necessary to uh, uh, diversify uh, gas supplies at this stage uh, and do as much as possible. But I would have thought that you would have a much more strategic view at the structural shift towards electricity uh, from the European Commission in this critical situation. And why am I saying that? Well, because we know that electrifying end use is very much about energy savings. So what is it we could do uh, in the longer term? We could save an awful lot of fossil fuels by switching to electricity. That's in transport and it's very much in heating and it's also in industry. That way we would structurally reduce our dependence on gas and at the same time, we would switch to something um, where we have more efficiency and we have uh, more European control, frankly, uh, on the volumes available because um, electricity production tends to happen on the continent. So I would have expected a, a much more strategic look at this uh, and also a, a much stronger focus on creating the frameworks for consistent accelerated investments into electricity. Unfortunately, from what we've seen until now, we have neither of those two. And that's a travesty, frankly. But Christian, surely the, is, is the uh, aim of the, the um, report from the European Commission today just to try and get off Russian gas? And so they have to, there's, a, there's an immediacy to that. Electrification is, of course, the right route to go down in terms of the energy transition over the next sort of 10, 20 years. But over this coming 12 months, uh, as Jan put forward, the the most the, the biggest thing we can do from an energy security standpoint and from a moral standpoint is to get off Russian gas as quickly as possible. Yeah, but I tend to agree with what Christian said. I think you cannot artificially separate it short and long term too much. I mean... Um, if you see the document, so the, basically the, the, the approach was still, okay, we need to get off Russian gas, but by diversifying to other sources of gas. Whereas this electrification first story, which was basically to not look at the gas market as in an isolated manner, and that electrification first and energy efficiency first story was very prominent in commission strategies until circa one year ago is not there. As, as Christian said, you, you can work with the power sector where we have cheap options like wind and solar, which somehow, despite their massive cost reductions we've seen, do not inspire politicians in the same way as the old recipes, I'm afraid to say. Uh, you, can, you, you will have to uh, electrify the hell out of everything, as Michael Liebreich tends to say, uh, and create the space for gas where it's, it will take a bit longer to replace it in industry and in heating. Um, but uh, I, I agree with Christian that that structural question is not as prominent or was in those leaks not as prominent as one would have imagined. 
what is impressive, though, I think, is how the conversation is starting to change with even politicians uh, representing political parties who were previously rather skeptical of the uh, energy transition and renewables, such as the Liberal Party in Germany, are now calling renewables freedom energy or freedom electricity, which um, is, a, is a new term uh, that they have certainly not used before. Um, and that is that is changing. So I think the perception of renewables is gradually changing. Uh, we're not doing enough yet, uh, I think, to support that transition. But you can see that even politicians who are more skeptical, I think, are now understanding increasingly that renewables um, you know, that generate electricity in Europe are a very important lever to reduce dependency on imports. So I'm, I'm perhaps a bit more hopeful than, than you, Michaela, that um, we are making progress, at least when it comes to the rhetoric. I think it remains to be seen whether that is backed up by solid policy. Well, I would, uh, I would concur so far that if we look at uh, the one thing that really stands out as a, as, a, as a sort of significant bet here, it is the idea that we could accelerate renewables even further. And, and there's a very strong thrust to do away with the permitting issues that have been raised by industry for years and years. And, and I would say in recent years, even more vocally, because we can see that this is the one huge bottleneck for deployment. And I think there are a few um, interesting formulations in, in the most recent leak I saw, which was about um, considering renewable uh, energy projects and, and the um, related grid infrastructures as, as a matter of public interest and therefore uh, giving them uh, that sort of, um, uh, let's say, status also in relation to permitting pro uh, processes. Uh, and the other thing uh, being that uh, there were specific formulations about identifying well-suited areas for deployment. This has been one of those things that has been lacking. We've seen higher and higher targets, uh, which is great, uh, but uh, targets alone will not do the job. You cannot stop at saying, I'm going to run 42 kilometers. You actually have to run them and find a way uh, for your body to do that. Yeah. So, um, so we now need to see those um, those flanking actions and enabling uh, frameworks that allow uh, us to reach those very high targets that um, that um, that we are uh, currently discussing. Yeah, that's been a great frustration of mine. Yeah, that we too often just talk about the targets and uh, we forget that those targets are only an ambition that you can only achieve if you have the regulation, the policy, the market design to actually facilitate the transition towards those targets. So I'm glad you say that, Christian. And I hope that in the, in the weeks to come, we're going to talk a lot more about what specifically is standing in the way of acceleration and standing in the way of diversifying our supply of energy. So hopefully we will get into that discussion um, after the strategies come out today. Christian, do you have a rough estimate of how much the industry can, how much your sector can deliver in wind and solar? Um, in our scenarios in Agora, they always said we basically need to deploy what we did in the last 20 years now in this decade. So is that something your your sector, like what what what, what can you put on the table? How fast can it go? Well, I think we uh, we pretty much agree on the ballpark figures. We need to see a significant acceleration. We need to to deploy uh, double or triple the amount uh, uh, that that we've seen uh, until now. Um, it's 
it's really uh, there's a number of different aspects to this, which is um, one, how fast can you actually produce solar panels, wind turbines? You can do that pretty fast. This is a matter of mass production. And, and the, the good things about these technologies is that you see the capacity factors uh, rise on solar and you see the capacity of wind turbines rise also. Uh, and, and that's going to continue. And at the same time, the relative uh, cost of these technologies will, will also continue to decrease, even if we have some supply chain issues. The second thing here is how fast can you actually build it? And that's back to the question about uh, the permitting, the space, uh, where actually to put this stuff. And this is what really is holding things back. Um, in, in recent uh, years, my, my mantra has been ambition requires permission. It's great uh, if we have the ambition to run a marathon, if we don't get the uh, permission to actually run it, we're not going anywhere. And, and this is where many things are stuck today. We have endless examples across the continent where um, various types of legislation stand in the way of a new renewable projects, where uh, public acceptance issues are hindering uh, new projects, where uh, just the uh, general bureaucracy lack of speediness in in the uh, in in the in the processes is is uh, dragging things out forever and remember that the longer a project drags out the longer it takes for people to see the money come back and uh, the less attractive the business case so so we really have a uh, uh, you know, an, a, a negative circle here that, that we need to break and, and, and make sure that, that we get things going much faster. Um, but speaking about, you know, what, what could be done this year in, in renewables, um, I mean, I would be very happy to see um, plus 40 gigawatts uh, being put up, and, and that's realistic. We've seen in the last recent years um, uh, 20 gigawatts of solar come online every year. And then we have wind, which um, which is is a bit lower, and and frankly, for that to 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 sort of reach the the necessary levels of deployment, you need to double the amount of wind that is coming onto the grid uh, for the moment. So um, so 40 would not be unrealistic, uh, but we need to go higher in order to uh, achieve just the 40 percent we've been talking about. Christian, to to achieve those sort of targets, there must be you know obviously we need. Uh, you say you say we can produce these solar panels and wind turbines quite easily, quite cheaply. Are we not? Is Europe not then at risk of becoming dependent on these sort of supply chains? Um, and I know you know a lot of solar panels come from China. Um, a lot of wind turbine blades are now being made outside of Europe. Um, are we? Is Europe running into another sort of energy security uh, pipeline um, crisis um, by ramping up the renewables? And can we not bring that? Does the production need to come back into Europe as well? I think we need to, to, to remember that for many, many years, we have lauded the merits of globalization. We live in an interconnected world, and that's a good thing. So it's good to trade with each other. And, and actually, if it weren't the fact that we were buying uh, fossil uh, products from Russia, it would have been a good thing actually to have trade relations because trade relations tend also to work in the other direction than, than uh, military conflict. That tends to create cultural bonds and, and civilized uh, uh, relations between nations. 
Um, so we are dependent on global supply chains for pretty much anything we consume in Europe. And the good thing about uh, the wind industry, for instance, is that we have some significant um, European strongholds here. My country, Denmark, happens to be a big producer of wind turbines. Germany has a big uh, industrial base for, for, for wind energy and its supply chain. The same for Spain. So we have hundreds of companies in the supply chain of wind in Europe. Solar is a bit of a different story. We kind of lost out to China on that one. Um, but um, again, importing things is not per se a bad thing. Uh, we, we will need to do that for many things. But speaking of this kind of, let's say, uh, homegrown approach, I think it's a travesty that we've not yet explored the possibility of of, of building a world-leading industry in heat pumps. We have uh, the likes of Bosch, huge companies that could be uh, global champions in this space easily. We have a plethora of small and medium-sized companies that produce really, really good heat pumps. And yet we're not seeing a significant political bet on this to build this as a leading industry to, to grow this and to nurture this. And if there were any point in history where this would be hugely relevant, this would be right now. So why is that not happening? That is a lack of political leadership in my view. Hi everyone, David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy by subscribing. You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29, Euros, where you can access our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now back to our conversation. I gotta come in there because uh, heat pumps are, of course, one of my pet topics. <laughs> I just published a piece last week for Carbon Brief, looking at the growth figures we've seen in a number of countries around the world in 2021, which are really encouraging. In some places, such as Poland, for example, we've seen growth that is um, more than 60% in a single year. So there are signs that the market is starting to change. Uh, and that's very positive. Uh, we keep hearing arguments that you know the electricity system cannot cope with all those heat pumps. Uh, also, people say, well, you know, if you produce electricity with fossil fuels such as gas, using that in heat pumps is less efficient. What what do you respond to sort of skeptics uh, like that, Christian, who say, uh, well, heat pumps are very well, but they just can't work at scale. You know, the electricity grid uh, will collapse, there won't be enough clean um, electricity to actually run those heat pumps. W what's your response to that and, and how would you address those arguments? Well, I think you, you mentioned three things here. First of all, will they ever work uh, on their own? Uh, you mentioned the grid dimension and you mentioned uh, the, the, the source of electricity supply. So let's take those one by one. Looking at the source, uh, I've seen some interesting studies that, that basically if you, if you had an electricity supply consisting 100% of gas, you would still have savings 
by going uh, to heating uh, via a heat pump because of the inherent efficiency in the pump. Uh, you're actually drawing heat from from the surroundings around you and and and, and thus have a hugely, um, uh, let's say, efficient uh, type of heating system with a heat pump. So that's for the first part. For the second part about the grids, we have to be clear that electrifying uh, big parts of the economy will need investments, and that is also the case for the grids. We are looking at uh, a significant shift in the energy system towards more decentralization. We are, we are expecting um, some uh, 30 million heat pumps to join the grids in the 2020s uh, if, if we want to reach the 55%. And we have some 15 million installed today. So, so this is a very significant mm -hmm. uptick. Um, at the same time, we have maybe 50 million electric cars joining that grid, uh, a lot of renewable resource. So let's be very clear, we need to have timely investments in uh, modernization, digitization of distribution grids in order to cope with this. Um, but, you know, this is not something that's 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 uh, that's scary for the industry. We're talking about an uptick in investments of some 50%, and then we need to deal with it, uh, just as we dealt with the introduction of uh, of 3G, 4G, and, and and now 5G. This is absolutely doable. Mm -hmm. uh, and, mm -hmm. and the last thing uh, is, do the heat pumps work at all? Um, I sometimes get that uh, from people who switch to an air-to-air uh, -air heat pump. Um, I have one myself. I think it works really well. Um, but I think what, what's, what's interesting is really uh, that, that we need to see some, uh, some shifts to, to, to more uh, robust bigger uh, heat pumps that already exist in the market. And, and what I'm thinking of here is, is, is the air to, to water heat pumps that would be really well suited to uh, replace gas boilers in individual homes. This would be uh, the moment in time to really make a huge bet on this technology uh, to introduce this uh, in, in homes across Europe uh, with a view to improving efficiency, with a view to weaning ourselves off, uh, off fossil um, supplies from Russia, and with a view to, to uh, basically getting a, a better and, and cleaner um, uh, heating system uh, all across Europe while building a thriving industry. I'm getting heat pump envy. First Jan shows off with his heat pump. Now the guests. I want one too. Um, I, I should add that I think the pro you asked the question, which is very legitimate. Uh, why do we not have our European heat pump leader shaping up? Uh, well, first of all, Jan's figures are so promising. We might have, but I think it's just that so far in EU policies, the heating part was mainly driven, we know, uh, it was uh, bioenergy and it was indirectly regulated by the gas package. There has never been really a strategic approach to, uh, you know, to boost these kind of technologies. That's also a point Jan and I made in the context of the Renewables Directive that this, you know, this idea of developing the leaders of tomorrow with thermal renewables and heat pump is not there yet. And it starts from you know, uh, electricity being much more expensive to all sorts of things. I mean, uh, if you compare, for example, the way we have regulated the transport sector, there was at some point uh, a multiplier in the Renewables Directive that 
incentivized electricity in that area, which has never been the case in the building sector. So I think these are the kind of issues that need to come on the table now. And that's now been taken out for the transport sector um, in the proposal. So the multiplier is gone uh, and there isn't one uh, for using electricity for heating uh, either. So that, that's, that's, that's absent. And we still, of course, install millions of new gas and oil boilers every year. Um, I mean, my view has been for a long time um, that, that that's a huge opportunity to actually switch to clean heating you know, at the point when you're already investing and you're changing the heating system. Uh, but currently, only very few countries have uh, put in place um, outright uh, bans of installing uh, fossil fuel heating, even in new buildings. You know, we still have new buildings that are put up um, that use gas and oil boilers, uh, which I have thought for a long time is, is, is scandalous. We should really stop doing that, um, especially given the current situation. Yeah, I fully agree. I mean, and it's not just about uh, still installing or, or not stopping it. It's it's uh, it's about uh, providing real incentives uh, to to gas boilers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we I saw a study uh, that um, we still have twenty out of twenty seven member states that provide an incentive for people uh, to to uh, go for a gas boiler rather than a heat pump. And and frankly, at this point in time, that is just uh, surely amazing. So, um, so, so something needs to be done there. And I think we have an opportunity at hand with the so-called Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, uh, also called EPBD. I know that the uh, shadow rapporteur, uh, Morten Helvig, uh, tends to call it the European Putin basher uh, directive, <laughs> uh, EPBD. <laughs> And, and I think we should use this opportunity to basically look at the heating systems in buildings and say, how do we align this with our geopolitical interest and how do we align this with our uh, climate interests? Yeah, absolutely. We've mentioned it a little bit here that the, the, we need the, the policies now that, to put in place the, these, these topics and these technologies. Um, why do you think, Christian, that the, even with the cost reductions in wind and solar and batteries and, and now with heat pumps coming on, that the politicians can't aren't being as creative as they have, they are perhaps with blue and green hydrogen, which are perhaps a slightly more questionable concept. Well, I would say that that we've seen significant improvements uh, in recent years. If you compare, uh, let's say, with with ten or fifteen years ago, there's been. Uh, what I would call almost a, a paradigm shift in the thinking in the European Commission uh, around electrification. If you look at the um, the 2050 roadmap from from 2011, uh, electricity was was almost absent. There was a slight increase, but but it's nothing compared to to the more recent scenarios uh, they've developed. We've seen uh, very very uh, strong targets extremely strong targets, I would say, on renewables and efficiency, um, that in a normal scenario with the current uh, bottlenecks are difficult to achieve, let's be clear. Um, so so I think there has been some improvements. Um, could they do more and, and could they be more creative? Absolutely. I, I totally agree. And, and, and we're actually working on a, on a couple of different projects where we try to spur that creativity and, and try to uh, force some out-of-the-box thinking when it comes to, to a renewable deployment. We're currently working on a project that we call Power Plant, which uh, follows the fundamental logic that, that power and plants uh, need to go together and uh, that we need to assess uh, new um, 
power installations in relation to the surrounding nature and also see where we can get that synergy going uh, between um, renewable deployment and uh, improved biodiversity. And one of the obvious places to look for that is in agriculture. We have a lot of places in Europe where agriculture is not exactly helping biodiversity. So what if we were to take an approach where we would strengthen uh, food security, where we would deploy renewable energy, and where we would improve the biodiversity uh, of, of the European continent, and try to take an integrated approach to that, make those projects really beautiful, make them huge, and provide the public support for that. I think that's hugely interesting, and that's something that, that we're trying to bring across and, and, and basically um, support that vision with some concrete uh, policy levers that would basically uh, not fall in the traditional energy space, but more be directed toward the agricultural policy, which is in strong need of uh, renovation, modernization. Um, in the area of biodiversity, which is often too decoupled from the energy debate uh, in, in the rem, uh, remaining uh, European Commission. So that's an area where we're looking for, uh, uh, or where we're looking to uh, spur the creativity of policymakers. It's like agrivoltaics and these kind of things, I guess, or... Yes, uh, but it is uh, Agrivoltaics 2.0 or 3.0. Um, it's about taking this to a completely new level. Um, if we look at the need for deployment, we are looking at gigawatts and gigawatts that need to be installed. And we need to, to take a look at that in relation to the food security issues. Mm -hmm. And we need to take a look at that in relation to the need for new types of carbon neutral fuels. I saw one extremely interesting project that I'll just try to, to sketch out for you. It was uh, an independent developer that had uh, put up a solar plant of, I think it was 70 megawatts. So uh, a big solar plant, but a small power plant. Now that was integrated with a, um, with a field where they want to, um, to grow protein grass. Now, why, why would you want to grow grass anywhere? Well, protein grass has the... Uh, uh, the upside that um, that you can basically uh, you can extract the, the protein juice from it and use that for fodder or uh, foods for for mm -hmm. animals or some some sort of uh, new types of agricultural uh, uh, food products. Now, with the remainder of that product, uh, you could basically provide an input for a, a methanization uh, process. So you could feed that into a, a biogas mm -hmm. uh, facility and get um, biogas out of this, which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And at the end of the day, you would have some biogene carbon left, which you could add as uh, an element in, um, in carbon neutral methanol, for instance. So, so we're looking at completely new value chains. We're looking at the possibility of creating a new combined energy and food industry in Europe. And that kind of publicly desirable objective should be what we use our uh, public money for. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the kind of logic that we're pursuing in, in the power plant project that we're currently developing. I wanted to come in again on electrification because you've mentioned this a few times already. Um, it, maybe it's worthwhile explaining to our listeners why electrification is such an important feature of the transition. 
um, and what benefits it could deliver. Um, and Christian, I'm sure you've been asked that question many times, but I think it would be worthwhile spelling that out as clearly as, as you can. Um, so, so someone who is not an expert in energy and understands why electrification is so important and why, why do we talk so much about heat pumps and electric vehicles and all these things? What, what's the benefit of doing that? Well, I think it, it essentially flows from the question, how do we get rid of fossil fuels in our energy system? What alternatives do we actually have? And, and looking at the history of the European Commission and what they've tried through time, uh, you can see that, that, uh, that they have failed in many uh, different and creative ways. Uh, we had a long stint with biofuels that turned out to be a dead end. And, um, and at some point, we, we were basically looking at what do we have in terms of options? That's what we put ourselves as the exam question when, when we did the decarbonization pathways uh, some five years ago. And, and what we arrived at was, yes, we can get rid of oil. Yes, we can get rid of coal. Yes, we can get rid of gas. Uh, and a big part of, of, of that exercise is about substituting those fossil fuels with clean electricity. Uh, why is that a good idea? Well, first of all, because the new technologies uh, for for electricity generation are extremely cheap. So, um, so we're throwing a lot of cheap electricity, uh, cheap energy into the electricity mix by adding renewables, and. At the same time, when we look at the, at the consumption side of this, we are seeing uh, some technologies that are way more efficient than their fossil um, um, competitors. Take the combustion engine car uh, compared with an electric car. Uh, it is The electric car is maybe three times more efficient in terms of, of the energy use. The heat pump is, is maybe five times more efficient than a gas boiler. So by by opting for electrification we get uh we get cheap electrons through the new generation technologies and we get increased efficiencies on the on the end uh, consumer side and that's why this is a good deal for the energy system uh for the uh, consumer and and what's been increasingly clear in recent days is also from a geopolitical stance Christian, do we need to revise the scenarios? I mean, I re if I recall correctly, the Commission's central scenario that underpinned the higher ambition, which you said was going already quite fine, I agree. Um, because if I remember collect, uh, correctly, there were other scenarios, including your electric, obviously, but also McKinsey, uh, that uh, had higher shares of electrification than the Commission's one. I do think we should um, we, we should review all our scenarios. Um, this is the point in time, and why is that so? Well, first and foremostly because energy is becoming so extremely expensive now. So that means that a whole bunch of technologies that were not in the money before are probably in the money. And I would have hoped, frankly, that the commission would use this particular communication to, to do some math on those numbers uh, and say, you know, uh, do we have a better case for electrification than we had before? That would have been a great contribution to the debate. But looking a bit deeper at, at, at the current scenarios, you know, um, if you then basically compare what you have in, in the in the long-term strategy of the European Commission with the 10-year network development plans, you see that whereas the long-term plan foresees a transition to 50% uh, electrification uh, and, and a significant reduction in, in, in the use of gas, 
the plans in the 10-year network development plans are basically to uh, maintain the current levels of gas consumption well into the 30s and maybe even until 2040. And then we have to ask ourselves the question, is that really feasible? Is it realistic? Is it desirable, especially in the situation that we have today? So yes, absolutely. We should be looking at those uh, scenarios. And, and currently, we're actually uh, taking a look at uh, at, at this um, perspective in a in a 2040 timeframe. We do too in Agora, I should add. <laughs> so we can compare notes. <laughs> Um, Christian, just very quickly, um, I just want to touch on digitalization briefly. We've spoken about it in our previous podcast. Uh, your electric has members such as Google and Microsoft. Um, but the, the uptake of digital projects and the digitalization of the energy transition seems to be quite slow. Um, what do you think we can do to help speed up the, uh, the take up of digital tools? And, and can it help with the, with the current crisis and with uh, Europe's energy independence? I think, honestly, it's a bit of a mixed picture. Um, there are things that are, you know, uh, frustratingly show, slow, uh, such as the uptake of uh, the installation of smart meters in certain countries, where it's just unbelievable how slow it is. Um, you know, uh, heavily industrialized and progressive nations are completely unable, apparently, to, to install smart meters, uh, which is a bit I of a... I think he talks about Germany. I didn't mention the country. Uh, <laughs> Um, but but we have those examples, and and frankly, uh, this is not about the companies not wanting this. It's it's often about citizens saying, "Yeah, no thanks, um, privacy. Uh, why would I bother?" And 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 there there can be a gazillion reasons why people don't want that. Um, but so so. So, so you have some things that that basically sort of uh, structurally inhibit the rollout of, of no regret digital solutions. On the other hand, I would say that there's a huge amount of innovation in the digital space right now. We have an unprecedented interest from from uh, uh, big tech in our uh, in our sector. Um, and I think that's reflected by the fact that, that the likes of Google and Microsoft are joining uh, the trade body for electricity. We see uh, a lot of really, really fascinating digitalization projects in individual companies uh, the likes of NL, you know, investing uh, five billion in a in a three year strategy to to digitize everything they have to go big on AI to to basically harvest the potential uh, that the digi digital world um, provides us uh, with. So I think it's a mixed picture. Uh, it's it's not only that this is not happening, but we could definitely do more. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then just finally, then we're, we're coming to the end of our uh, time together. But thank you so much for your input today. Um, Given your experience in the wind sector, you were previously at Wind Europe or in its previous guise as the European Wind Energy Association, um, and now as head of your electric. Have you noticed how uh, uh, there's has, have you noticed a change in how electricity companies view renewables? And do you think it might change further still off the back of the current glo uh, global situation and with cost reductions and things? Yeah, frankly, I think that shift happened uh, five to seven years ago. Um, I think when when the European electricity industry chose 
a wind person to lead uh, their shop, that was already a quite clear sign that that uh, uh, the winds of change were blowing. Uh, in the in the most recent years, we've then really also increased focus on this, and 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 this has been one of the things I've been working a lot with. Um, so, and, and when you look at something, uh, an obvious indicator like, um, you know, generation investments, um, they are really very, very uh, unequivocally pointing towards renewables as the future. That's just indisputable. Again, we, we really have to maintain that nuance, which is it is overwhelming re renewables, but we need the system to function and that requires some backup technologies. So, so that's the but that we really mustn't forget because it's a hugely important part of this. Um, but um, looking forward, I think we will also see um, companies that have until now not been very actively investing in renewables uh, go there. Um, I think this uh, situation will exacerbate it. Um, gas has, from an operational point of view, been convenient. It's easy because there was an existing infrastructure. There was a safe supply. Russia has been a very, very uh, reliable uh, supplier of gas for many, many years. And, um, and it has been volumes that have been very, very difficult and remain difficult to uh, substitute. And they are, relatively speaking, compared to coal, still lower uh, in carbon content. So, so there's been a lot of reasons why, why Europe fell into this complacency. Um, now, uh, we've also faced a, a very, very stark uh, wake-up call uh, with the atrocities, frankly, that, that we're seeing the, the Russians commit in, in Ukraine. And uh, the threat that this will spread because most people that have been looking at what Putin is saying realize that he would not necessarily stop at Ukraine. He would go further. He sees uh, the uh, demarcation lines of, of the former Soviet Union as the legitimate territory of Russia. And, um, and that is something that is, of course, fundamentally unacceptable to anybody who's invested in the European project. Just finally, then, before we go, uh, I ask all of our guests if they could look into their crystal ball. What does the uh, energy market look like in 10 or 20 years time? Uh, Christian, what are your thoughts? On that? And has that changed in the last sort of month or so? I think it has changed uh, within the last two weeks. I think uh, if we look 10, 20 years into the future, we will be significantly less reliant on gas. We will... Uh, see that policymakers uh, eventually get their head around um, and need for an accelerated electrification strategy and therefore we will see much more electrification. We'll see a more integrated uh, energy system revolve around electricity because the cars will go electric, the heating will increasingly go electric. Uh, so we will see a cleaner, uh, a cheaper and a better energy system that is also uh, more climate friendly. Uh, I remain of that conviction and I remain um, combative to fight for it. Excellent. And do you think that, how has that changed in the last uh, few weeks? Has it accelerated in your mind? Well, I, as I said, I think that that we have had a very, very stark wake up call that, uh, that Gas as a bridge, as we've seen it until now, uh, with 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 very uh, with a very as a very long bridge, I would say, is not a viable uh, option in the current situation. 
Brilliant. Thank you so much. Uh, before we go then, uh, I'd like to ask everyone to see uh, what caught their eye this week uh, in the news or on their social media channels. Uh, Michaela, uh, anything in particular that caught your eye this week? Picks a bit up on the point that Christian just made. I saw the quote of Antonio Guterres from the UN, who basically said, used very drastic words uh, and uh, said, fossil fuels are a dead end for our planet, for humanity and economies. I, it is quite drastic. It's like, you know, what you would usually expect from NGO, hardcore NGOs to say. Uh, he said it. Um, and I think it just shows that, uh, you know, uh, new thinking is coming in because, uh, as Christian just said, uh, in the EU uh, arena, the, the gas as bridge picture was very dominant. And I think that is put into question now here as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jan, what caught your eye this week? Well, it's the IA 10-point plan, which um, I found really interesting. That came out in response uh, to the war in Ukraine. Uh, you're providing 10 uh, points um, how the EU could move away from Russian gas uh, imports. And that's caused uh, a pretty significant uh, discussion in the media. Uh, and I felt the IA did a pretty thorough job in highlighting you know, some of the key options. Um, it remains to be seen how much of that is translated also into the EU strategy that is going to come out. Um, but that was the main item, I think, that really caught my eye. And if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to take a look at it. Absolutely. We'll include uh, links to, uh, to all of these in our show notes. Christian, uh, what caught your eye this week? Well, picking up perhaps on what Jan said, uh, I, would, I would highlight two things from that IEA piece. Uh, first of all, that the ambition is too low. Uh, you know, getting rid of only a third is is not going far enough. Uh, the second thing is that that they have a major problem with with this recommendation, which is about taxing uh, uh, the so-called uh, uh, windfall profits of of electricity companies. This is the recipe for undermining investor certainty. And, and this is really the opposite of what we need right now. We need certainty and confidence in electric investments. So this is utterly unhelpful. But what caught my eye separately of that this week um, was a, a recent study that, that points to, uh, to the risk of, uh, of a point of no return for the Amazon. This is something that touches me very deeply. Um, and it, it points to me, uh, for me, to the fact that we mustn't let this one crisis divert our attention from the fundamental challenge that we're facing, which is that we need to fix the climate and we need to fix biodiversity. That remains the key priority. And what we do here in the short term with this crisis needs to feed into that longer term objective. Absolutely, hundred uh, percent. I agree that completely. You know talk of you know energy and energy transition and everything and we need to make sure that we keep the the climate and climate change in our, in the front of our minds uh, as well um finally from me then uh, what caught my eye uh, is another offshore wind um story uh that's sort of my um pet topic uh is that our following from the um, amazing auctions in the united states uh, a couple of weeks ago um that australia and the state of victoria has uh, committed to nine gigawatts of offshore wind by 2040 um which is another a major major market and with a huge offshore wind potential that's now starting to get up and running another uh, market for uh, european companies to obviously 
um, tap into as well. So something really interesting, really exciting that's going on uh, down under. So um, yeah, really exciting times there. Um, and another major market that could compete with with the US and Europe uh, as well. So really exciting. Um, thank you so much. Uh, that's all we have time for today. Thank you. My thanks to Christian, uh, Jan and Michaela. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we've said on today's podcast uh, or any ideas for future episodes, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at DaveW underscore Foresight. Christian? I'm at Christian Ruby. Michaela? At Citizen Sane 1. And Jan? At Jan Rosenau. Uh, you can also tweet the show at What Matters Pod or email us at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again very soon. <laughs>